0: Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us once again, assuming this is uh, not the first time you've tuned into the show. If it is the first time you've tuned into the show, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in uh, the Pacific Northwest, Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I've written some books, and I've been a professor of philosophy teaching at the undergraduate level, but enough about me. Uh, How about you, Glenn?
1: Uh, whether or not you, this is your first time listening, I am Glenn Sunshine. <laughs> I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview Ministry, associated Reflections Ministries, and professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State
0: University. Okay, and today it's your day, Tom. Why don't you introduce
2: yourself and then take us right into the subject of the day? Okay, I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, uh, theological ethics. And philosophy, one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Topic of the day. The the topic of today is one that we have addressed before, but this is going to be in a new key. So let's think jazz a little bit and think that we're going to be uh, over some familiar territory, but we're going to be taking it into some improvisation, into arenas I don't think we've dealt with before. But the title will be basically around the topic of apocalyptic... Um, AI, apocalyptic AI, uh, artificial intelligence. And I picked the title from a book by Robert Garacci. He wrote in 2010 a book on Oxford Press called Apocalyptic AI, Visions of Heaven in Robotics, Artificial Intelligence, and Virtual Reality. And so I thought by way of introduction, I'd kind of go down uh, memory lane a little for for uh, for us anyway and recall a show probably in the, I think it was the 70s. I grew up as a kid watching Six Million Dollar Man. I don't know if you guys Oh, know. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like the Six Billion
0: Dollar Man. That might even <laughs> yeah. be low today.
2: Right? Yeah. And so the story was uh, based on a sci-fi novel by Martin, I think Kaiden. I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, which was called Cyborg. And I remember it. Yeah. And so for those that aren't familiar with, you know, what a cyborg is, I know the younger people are cringing right now, but some of maybe the older people aren't. A good definition is a human who has extra human abilities. And they have these because um, basically they've had installed with or they've been installed with or fused with um, technology or some kind of, you know, some kind of machine, if you will, That allows them to have enhanced capabilities it's the fusion of science with the human being if you will and technology with the human um it's close to bionic they're not the same thing and i guess for the people who want precision they would they would kind of not see them as interchangeable terms but six million dollar man went by bionic man um rather than cyborg man and so, uh, but but they, they mean close to the same thing. But he basically, for those who don't know, he's basically a character that works, I believe, for NASA. And he has a accident in this test run um, from for some you know some flight he's going to do or something he's going to be doing for NASA, and he ends up getting injured seriously. And basically, the you know the kind of hidden intelligence world he's a part of of the U.S. government. Are convinced that maybe they should fix him and repair him with uh, bionic parts. And so he ends up with these. Uh, Steve Austin ends up with these capabilities. I think it's one of his arms is really enhanced and it has even some kind of a weapon tree, if I remember. He has different parts of him that have a superhuman, if you will, or ability to move beyond the natural um, physical limits. And so the story is wrapped around how he becomes sort of an agent for the U.S. government for the good. Um, So science is allowed to enhance these human capabilities, making him live and live a kind of extraordinary life. And in the process, he's able to actually achieve something good on behalf of society or humanity. Well, I remember the show vividly.
0: I remember the opening sequence. He's a test pilot. He crashes, uh, he loses both legs and an arm and an eye. And so each of those play into the show. And then there is this cheesy sort of way of dealing with you know, his super speed. And it was by slowing down the <laughs> action, you know, because presumably he's moving so fast. You would never see him unless they <laughs> slow down, but, but actually they're slowing it down. So it like, it's this tedious thing. Every time he's and running. They, and they had a sound
2: with it. If I remember <laughs> <laughs> like, eh, 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 That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I do remember one episode where they actually show him going at his, Actual speed, really. presumably. <laughs> yeah. And he's in there are a couple of people sitting on a porch, you know, down south, and he's he flashes by in this field and they're all just, what was that? <laughs> and he's, he's going like 150 or something, you know. I, <laughs> anyway, that 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 was what I recall. And I was, I loved the show. I, I yeah. was, uh, I was into it.
2: Yeah. And that was kind of the thing. I think I remember as kids would watch it and then. The next day, because it usually came on the evening or later that night with my brother, we were trying to become bionic men, you know, and so here (laughs) we are (laughs) trying to do and we would, you know, reenact it. But there is this kind of sense, you know, it was fantasy for us and it was but this notion of having this kind of superhuman ability and superhuman intelligence, if you will, was very attractive to us. Um, and we know that through through just the advancements of technology that we have and that help make a lot of things easier and enhance our natural capabilities in many cases, far transcending anything imaginable um, to just several generations you know ago. Do you, you remember,
0: of course, that there was a, another show, The Bionic Woman? So we had The Bionic Man. So naturally, you have to have The Bionic Woman. And she's got the same kind of thing. She can yeah. run really fast, jump really high. I think one of her arms, but it's the ear for her, not the eye, which I thought was kind of fascinating because (laughs) if you're going to give a guy like an enhanced sensory perception, it's the eye that a guy (laughs) would want. Now, would a woman want the ear? You know, that's kind of something to think about. You know, sure. what is there something kind of going on with that? That's she, actually kind of she could, she stereotypically could gossiping about it. <laughs> that's what that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> you know, and then they would do the close up of her ear every time that she was listening in on something. But yeah. those were those were the those were the two shows, and they were pretty popular. They were, yeah. they, everybody everybody knew about them.
2: Yeah, everybody did. I think, believe it or not, I mean, that's the last point on that, but I think they got them together at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and so, but yeah, I mean, this book really stirred in our young imaginations, and I I think there is, what I'm finding is there has been a whole host of these kinds of sci-fi popular literature that has really brought a lot of the imagination of of science, uh, fusing with natural humanity, if you will, um, to create this kind of higher level of existence, um, that really has been there for, for quite a while to where it becomes pretty easy to sell at a certain point. And I'm going to come back to that. Yeah, Glenn. Before you move on, you're, you're missing an
1: entire genre of this,
2: which is cyberpunk. Yeah, that's right. That yeah, I mean, yep, that's where the matrix. You know, that, and,
1: yeah, yeah yep. the, the, like like in the matrix, the idea that you can plug your mind into a computer and all of that kind of thing. Um, that's right. It's not the same kind of physical enhancement that you get with yeah. with uh, uh, the six million dollar man and such, but it is. It, it, it's of the same genus, at least.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting to note that these two things kind of follow on each other. So cyborg that came out. In the seventies, and then uh, the whole cyberpunk phenomenon, if I remember correctly, was kind of late eighties, 80s, eighties ish. I can't remember the na- the name of the guy that was the first kind of uh, sort of the the guy who wrote sort of like the the uh, kind of the seminal book. And I uh, I have to go back and look into it, but um, but it did lead to all kinds of things. And then you know we see what occurs in the eighties, and now here we are, you know, forty years later. At least when it comes to Six Million Dollar Man.
2: Yeah, and and in some ways we are, you know, we're participating in it right now, in, in some of the enhancements and 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 ways in which we are able to transcend, you know, temporality in a certain way, um, not physically in, in ourselves, but through this technology and to allow these kind of uh, enhanced conversations to take place. And so I'm going to pull back to that. At, come back to that in a bit. But it's important, I think, to notice that little distinction because you're right, uh, both of you are right, with there is a difference sort of between the biotechnical approach to enhancement and then the AI and robotics approach, which are, you know, will we'll move towards a kind of transhumanism of uploading the mind, if you will, onto a computer and, and things like that. But one of the things Garachi is interested in in this book is the way in which there is a presence. In uh, of basically a sort of apocalyptic theology in the popular science books on robotics and artificial intelligence, that there there is a kind of religious thread through it um, that has some kinship, of course, to Western religion. This apocalyptic sense, this eschatological sense, um, but then also has mutations in it, and then it completely changes and places it in another worldview setting. Um, So one of his claims in the book, after looking at Western history of religion and science, um, is how the apocalyptic religious emphasis in the West is reconfigured and carried into a new technological worldview. And he notes how significant research scientists, in particular in the area of robotics and in the area of AI, not only are at the forefront of the research and the academic side, but also are the ones writing the popular uh, science books. And so they're the ones creating this kind of um, popular notion of what this kind of technology can do for us. Um, and he, he really notes some key figures. Um, some of these I had never heard before. And um, one of these is Hans Moravik. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a futurist. Um, but he was noted for his academic work for Carnegie Mellon University. He was uh, did, at the forefront of kind of research in robotics. But he wrote a book called Mind, Chil- Mind Children, The Future of Robot and Human Intelligence. Um, do you know, and do you, mm-hmm. do you know what year that he published that? It was 1988. Okay. Well, this is
0: interesting because I just looked up the guy I was thinking about. This is William Gibson, huh. and he wrote uh, Neuromancer in 1984. So that was like the, the, like the seminal book for the whole
2: cyberpunk genre. Interesting. And kind, of, kind of coming out at the same time. Coming out yeah. at the same time. And then a decade later, um, a little bit over a decade, he wrote another one called Robot, The Mere Machine to a Transcendent Mind. Um, and there were several key points that were emphasized by this work. Um, it, these will sound familiar for, from our show on transhumanism. Um, one is that human minds, if they can be transferred to computers, will provide a superior, faster intelligence, if not a virtual immortality. Um, this has been going around a while. I think you, I think we talked about before the uh, book some years back by a. Uh, I think it was an astrophysicist called Immortality. I don't know if you remember that book, but uh, oh, I do, I do. Yeah, he uh, he actually
0: posited a, a, an actual resurrection.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So he was he was this weird guy who came out of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> and he would show up to the American Academy of Religion and just mock people for not believing in the resurrection. Yeah, and uh, but he wasn't coming from it, coming at it from a theological point of view, but just
2: from the standpoint of physics. That's right. Yes, that's right. And he he was somebody who who really, kind of, from in that field, uh, really talked. I think I think in the end there was sort of just this hyper consciousness behind all things for him. And I think it was called the physics of immortality. That was the name. That of the was book. it. That was it. Yeah. Right, right. Physics of immortality. And so you can see that how that kind of that that worldview is developing here for something beyond a kind of just. Uh, bland naturalism I mean they still hold a naturalistic kind of approach but but they they recognize that their their uh, their the former views of, of physicalism uh, are not deep enough for what they're, they're after or what they're finding I think in science um, but the other yeah. emphasis the other emphasis is that the human will eventually form a community mind in cyberspace and will bring other animal life forms into it. So you're starting to see this imagination open up to move from this world into the cyber world, in which all the things that are here can actually be brought into this cyber paradise, if you will. And then the human will event, uh, this, well, there will be a super consciousness. And this will be a synthesis not only of human consciousness, but terrestrial and extraterrestrial life. And it will be continuously improving and expanding, kind of like the way consciousness evolves, if you will. And it has a mission to it, to convert non-life into consciousness, into mind. Um, but another way in which this is talked about, and this will tie it to like some of the things we talked about last week, is that they really believe that the cyber world is a way, an avenue into enchantment. Um, enchantment becomes a very significant theme in their language. So rather than Weber's notion that sort of primitive societies that don't have science tend to enchant the world, right? And science comes in and disenchants it. Um, what what these this kind of uh, science and technology seeks to promote is that, that view of science is really deadening um, and soul-crushing crushing and anti-human, impersonal, and that this kind of science um, actually has a hope of enchanting the world, filling it, infusing it with meaning, and then creating a kind of immortality in higher telos for which we can direct our technology and our humanness. All I can say is that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah,
1: This is exactly, you know, the the thing that I find interesting here is all of the guys who are talking about this kind of thing see it in apocalyptic terms as bringing in the millennium, okay? Bringing in in the golden age, all of that kind of thing. Popular presentations of this always are dystopian. That's true. That's true. And Lewis obviously is you know with that hideous strength is talking about exactly the kinds of things that, that you're talking about here.
0: That's right. 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 Which I think raises the question uh, for me anyway, why is it that regular folks can see the downside and these, uh, I guess, dreamers are unable to pull themselves back, um, so a friend of mine, you know, Dan McCarthy over at the American Spectator, he just published something here on uh, artificial wombs, uh, and it's pretty creepy stuff. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, he's a theist, he's a believer, he's not, uh, you know, uh, stating that this is great, but at the same time he's kind of saying this is pretty much what's coming and we better figure out a way to Prepare ourselves for it yeah. uh, because of the sort of the the unforeseeable social implications of this that's the thing these guys never think about the uh, sort of the ancillary damage the the unintended consequences they're just so wrapped up in whatever yeah. it is they're they're trying to do uh they don't they don't seem to count any costs
2: yeah, and I think what, the, what it is, and this is kind of the point of, uh, of the book in many ways, is, is he's wanting to trace, you know, when, when we're aware that things can go very badly. As a matter of fact, all the promises of science as salvation went very badly, it, um, even though there were many benefits, Um, he's really trying to get a hold of what what captures the kind of imagination that keep going into this stuff. And and I think he does a healthy job of that. He starts, of course, with Western Christianity, Judeo-Christianity in many ways. And he goes back into, you know, the biblical apocalyptic um, promises. But it, he really uh, hones in on uh, Francis Bacon's work, uh, New Atlantis. I don't know if uh, you remember the details of that, where he develops basically a story of, uh, you know, some guys going out to do some trade uh, from uh, I think Peru to China. And they end up getting a, a, a storm comes in and blows them. To this island that was on none of the maps they studied and and basically they shipwreck and eventually the people from this this uh, island come out and recognize that they're not bad guys so they invite them to the island um and to stay a bit charitably and they have christianity there and they can speak hebrew and greek and latin and spanish um but then but this at the center of this um this new atlantis and atlantis is key there um, is a people who have not have through Christianity gotten to the point where they are able to have the the wisdom that Adam had before the fall, what an ancient civilization like Atlantis had before it was destroyed by sin. And so with the redemption of Christ comes along a parallel um, this worldly um, benefit and that has been something that our ability to, relate to creation in a way that we can start to understand it, how it works, allows us to increasingly develop tools that allow us to have the powers that we had before the fall, right? So we have these capabilities that Adam had um, to understand things, know things, have dominion over them. Um, and so we start to get this again heading towards a, you know our, our redemption. So not only are our souls going to be saved, but we are also going to be through our own participation, um, restoring the, the earth as well through technology yeah. and dominion. So I, I think I'm, in,
0: yeah, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts here, Glenn, particularly related to this sort of the historical phenomenon we're describing here. There was in the Renaissance uh, this kind of uh, antiquarianism, you know, this quest for lost knowledge, you know, at ad- language, you know, all the, all of the, all of the, I guess, uh, conjecture concerning what was lost, say, in, uh, you know, uh, Alexandria when the, the the library burnt down, you know, there, there was all of these thoughts that that was the place where a lot of these uh, marvelous, uh, you know, things were recorded. Uh, if we could just get those, I, I have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well... The- the Renaissance, people people think about the Renaissance as sort of being the start of modernity. They're out of their minds. The <laughs> Renaissance was a profoundly backward-looking movement. I mean, the entire term, renaissance, rebirth, rinascita in, in Italian, it's a rebirth of what? Well, actually, what they were looking at is a rebirth of uh, what they called civilization, which meant a return to ancient um, ancient learning. Um one way of looking at this is, did you, did you ever wonder what the Middle Ages are in the middle of? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, from the perspective of the Renaissance, there are two periods of civilization, ancient civilization and modern civilization, starting with them. And the Middle Ages was this blank space between the two. Right. You know, But but the, 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 the problem was, uh, all right, their entire epistemological system, you need a little background here. They believed that truth was objective, uh, that it was accessible uh, at a finite level, at least, it was accessible to the human mind. Um, And further, that it was necessary for society because a society not built on truth is built on a lie and therefore will collapse. The corollary of this is that therefore your best guide to truth is successful societies in the past. So you look at, at the great ancient civilizations and they must have had a large measure of truth. And since truth is objective, all ancient truths had to agree. Hmm. So they were, you know, uh, they, 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 the, the great project of the Renaissance intellectually was to create what I call a grand synthesis of all human knowledge. So what they would do, now the medievals tried this. In the age of the Summa Summa Theologica, Summa Contra Gentiles, and so on, we know those from Aquinas, but there are others out there. They were trying to do something similar, but the medievals realized it was impossible. It was just too big a job. The Renaissance thinkers didn't read the medievals because they were a bunch of ignoramuses as far as they were concerned. Only now they're on this great quest to find ancient manuscripts that had been lost Uh, You've got people like Pico della Mirandola who's reading Arabic sources and the Kabbalah and all these other things. And they're trying to synthesize them into a single grand, well, synthesis. And the problem is they've got a lot more material than the medievals did. And the medievals realized it was overwhelming and couldn't be done. Eventually, this entire project collapses under its own weight, which creates a whole host of other problems. But what you do see in the Renaissance that carries on is a growing confidence in human ability. Um, Even among a Puritan like Bacon, he may have accepted uh, the doctrines of grace that there's no way he can achieve salvation. But that doesn't mean he can't come to understand and improve things in this world. And so among the Puritans in particular, you get a push toward a kind of post-millennialism. And that's what you're seeing in Bacon. Yeah. The, the big problem you run into, um, not nobody is in, in a position to actually start a utopian program. Yeah. But the problem that you have is that whenever you have somebody who's trying to do a utopian program, they're invariably totalitarians. They cannot tolerate dissent because any dissent threatens to hinder the coming of the, the golden age. And we see this over and over again throughout history.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a great kind of encapsulation of it. And now we see this technological sort of approach that has you know roots not only in the the method that that Bacon yes. uh, you know is has you know promoted, but even the the kind of the outlook. You know, was it the the Nouveau Organum? Is that is that how it's pronounced? Uh, The uh, yeah yeah so in that is where he's laying out you know the the approach but there's this quest for the recovery of this lost estate uh as you noted uh, adam's um dominion presumably uh exercised through knowledge that we no longer possess and this is a quest to reacquire it
2: i think this is where i could you know theology and and the running threads of different ideas gets complicated i mean i think this is this is where you are kind of after nominalism and, and kind of the break the breaking down of old universals you, uh, but a, a strong turn to the dignity of the in, the particular um, and how it how and then understanding the particular in, in ways and then recognizing we have this power um to to kind of understand it and and bring it under dominion as we order our lives under the dominion of, of Christ. I mean this is kind of how this picture's taking shape and huge advancements were done but notice in the New Atlantis one of the things that's at the heart of it is not the the church or or the sanctuary that's where they allow the you know the the group to stay who are shipwrecked but they then invite them to what's called Solomon's house right and there's your wisdom notion and solomon's house is a scientific academy in in the story and it's a place where they start to show them technological advances that prolong life bring about healing allow them to control the weather and then there is a new there's a kind of commission from that group that the the elites in that group if you will or members of that scientific group um, they are allowed to go and observe the other places and to see where their advance is. But eventually their mission is to bring that knowledge, that sacred science to all these other islands and civilizations as a gift. And this is where some will see that, you know, your start to kind of um, imperialism and colonization in the name of doing kind of a good thing for someone else. I saw something the other day, the same attitude um some it had a little pic it was on twitter i think i was just kind of scrolling some of the idiocy that kind of floats through there and there was there there was a there was a picture of a guy going on a mission trip i guess on an airplane and some girl was uh commenting you know they don't need uh, they already have christians in that country and why do they need them to go bring their technological help i mean it was this kind of this kind the, the kind of angry attitude towards this kind of you know this kind of uh wedding of Christianity with technological advancement, seeing it as a form of colonization. But it, it for, for Bacon in the story, it was seen as a form of helping people, not hurting them. Um,
1: if I can throw something in here. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to one of those countries, they are very, very happy to receive whatever they can in the way of technology, medicine, uh, better agricultural practices, all of those kinds of things. They are desperate for it. Yeah. Um, Just a a quick story. My mother went to a mobile clinic in Sierra Leone when we were visiting there once. Sierra Leone is the poorest country in Africa. Mm. And as someone who had been a nurse, she was in charge of doing malaria tests. Anybody who came in with a fever got a malaria test. Every one of them was positive. They kept the clinic going until they ran out of medicine. Most of the medicine that they had was Tylenol. Hmm. There are people coming in with these serious infections that need irrigation, intravenous antibiotics and things like that. And all they can give them is Tylenol. So don't talk to me about cultural imperialism by bringing the benefits of modern medicine and things like that to these countries, I'm not going to have it.
2: Yeah, it's it, it, and I think it, it's always the people that are soaked in the comforts of of, of it that that want to deprive others of it in the name of some good ideal in it. But my my point being though that this kind of the, the impact in some ways of of what Bacon was up to has has continuance all the way down the contemporary forms of mission movements. Um again, I understand the the leg the negative legacy that goes with some of that, but I also understand we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and throw everything that was going on here away. Because what we do is we hand it to the AI apocalypse types um, and, and others and and I think there there is a place of continuity between the, the fertile ground of Christianity that allowed the natural sciences to take place and our part in bringing that that those the, the gifts that come from that. And I do think they, they, they are related to the wisdom we have from Christianity. I, I do not think that groundwork would have been laid for it. Again, it's usually when it hasn't been practiced in a proper ordering to the, the Christian vision that you see the abuses and, and the problems.
1: The, the question, I, I'm going back to something I said earlier here, where the theorists are all, well, frankly, utopians, but at yeah. the popular level, everything is dystopian. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Um, there's something, else, I think it was LBJ said once about, about legislation— he said, the question that you should be asking isn't the good it could do if it is implemented correctly. It's the evil that it can do if it's implemented badly. Yeah, yeah. And and I think the common sense of people is, well, we've all been to the DMV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the yeah. common sense of the people is it's going to be implemented badly. The Most people, I suspect, on, on, on sort of a gut level— don't trust the elites to run the world for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: That's why they see it as utopian, but the elites are dystopian while the elites see it as utopian.
0: And we see what just happened in Sri Lanka. They took yeah. the advice of the World Economic Forum and it ended up in, a, you know, social collapse and economic collapse in a very short time. Anyway, well, Tom, Tom, go ahead. Take us, take yeah, us where you well, want us to go.
2: Well, I mean, the, these things are related because I think one of the things you're going to see, this movement... It is, is, isn't so homogenous, and I think the danger is, and this is kind of where I'm going to head toward the end, is what happens when this gets hijacked or taken taken over by people with sinister interests like an elite. But one of the things I think some of the early in this kind of apocalyptic AI movement, um, they were really suspicious of that kind of scientific elite. A lot of them, which I didn't know, were counterculturalists, and, and a lot of them started to live in communes um, in the U.S., um, because they they really thought the modern world had become unhealthily disenCHANTed through science. They thought that the promises of science, um, in this kind of in this, if you could call it a secular way, it's not really a secular way, but ripped out of its theological roots and serving basically utilitarian interests, was very dehumanizing. And so they went and uh, moved into kind of countercultural communes. But one of the interesting things with some of these groups is they still looked towards a technological solution. They were not going to return to a a primitive religion. Um, So they had to look somewhere to carry out some kind of hopeful vision. Um, It wasn't good enough to just kind of farm together, you know, in their minds. Um, and so what you had is these different groups that, that developed, that tied the kind of religious ideals of hope and, and immortality and uh, overcoming um, a lot of the limits we have is, as creatures that cause a lot of the problems in the world with digital technology in particular, and so one of the key figures is uh, someone that went by the name Stuart Brand. And I don't know if you remember, he had a magazine uh, years ago called The Whole Earth Catalog. Oh, yeah, yeah I remember that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that that was a countercultural magazine. Uh, and it had a huge uh, impact, I guess, in, in promoting eventually. Oh, I cycle. remember it.
0: Yeah, I remember yeah. it. Well, that's paradoxical, as you note, because yeah. I mean, the sort of the early stages of that magazine were all about kind of hippie granola yeah. themes, yeah. and then it gets into the next thing you know, the internet.
2: Yeah, yeah. It starts to focus on that cyber culture. And so they were reacting against, of course, technological culture that had been mechanical and meaningless um, and impersonal and inhumane. And so what they did and flying, you know, flying to the counterculture, if you will, is they eventually sought, they, they, they basically developed the kind of Approach to technology that sought to humanize it. Right. So the robot, in many ways, is is their way of humanizing technology, making it more human-like, not less human-like. So the goal is not, therefore, to dehumanize tech. You know, uh, be dehumanized by technology, but rather to humanize technology, so that in a in a way, it can almost become familiar, similar. Um, something easier to relate to, something easily to indwell, if you will. I mean, there is this making a home here. Yeah, when you think about some
0: of the some of the things that were done with robots in literature, you think of Asimov's laws, you know, and essentially, you know, what he's proposing is a kind of moral stricture that makes the robot more humane, yeah. and the people that these robots serve. Yeah, uh, I remember. There's here's a here's an interesting sort of uh film that i maybe brings together these these themes Do you remember silent running it was a science fiction film about uh ecological you know the collapse of the ecosystem in the earth and they put all of these different sort of small mini ecosystems in on spacecraft and send them out into uh you know uh you know space orbiting the sun but intended to preserve them. But they had a they had some, this one character. I think, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the actor. But he was kind of a counterculture guy himself, and he plays this this renegade um, scientist who's trying to preserve this the these you know small uh, domes that have these different ecosystems in them. And he's got three helpers: these little robots, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. <laughs> 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 he gives them their names and you actually in the course of the film kind of fall in love with these little robots
2: yeah and, yeah, yeah and
0: and he loves those little robots more than the crew that he kills he kills all the rest of the guys on the ship uh in the interest of saving these plants and the, the flora and the fauna anyway <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you, you 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 see this kind of stuff in in a lot of the films and the literature. I mean, I mean, you could think of just the, the the changes that happen in the different Star War uh, Star Trek series, right? I mean, yeah. you have a kind of android like I know Vulcan with with Spock, but very detached and calculate, you know, calculating. Mm-hmm unemotional but then you have i think the later series the the new star trek you have uh was what was it data data the the android right which is supposed to try to feel a little more and then they increasingly tried to make them as human-like as could be um and then you see technology now developing very human-like you know skin and and uh you know things that are getting you know creepily close um though those soulless you know um but then you have like star wars where you have these funny personally relatable uh you know robots uh, c3po and uh, r2d2 you almost see them as cute little characters that uh yeah, they're, you know.
0: they're kind of like uh, Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> by, the, by the way, the, the star that was in Silent Running was Bruce Dern. I thought it was Bruce ah. Dern, but I, I just didn't. You remember him. He was, he was kind of anti-authoritarian, you know, back <laughs> in the day with all the, all the stuff that he was in. But anyway, yeah, good film, by the way. I, I, would, I, I recommend it. Uh, go ahead and watch Silent Running silent running. Yeah. So, but it, there are, there's a, Glenn, go ahead. Just a, a quick aside on, on Star
1: Wars. Could you imagine how much different it would have been if C-3PO had a Brooklyn accent?
0: yeah he's he's definitely uh, a butler type uh but then he would be sort of like i don't know a cab driver type if he was at the brooklyn
2: (laughs) maybe maybe more relatable (laughs) yeah and uh so you 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 notice with this movement um some of the old themes of of kind of of, of that there is kind of eschatological hope, and that we can kind of uh, advance. And but there also is a suspicion of the kind of modernist interpretation of science in practice. And so there is almost a wedding of a romanticism. I think that's where you get your idealism still. But this notion that the you know the, the closer we can get to the humane and 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 um, less impacted by the deep. You know, the the impersonal nature of of where science and bureaucracy and technology has taken us, we can redo technology and we can redo it this time in a way that is uh, humanistic and positive.
0: Well, there was a great deal of naive optimism in the early stages of the Internet. I remember it vividly in the late 90s. This was all supposed to be liberating. This was all going to help, you know, help us overcome the barriers that separate us um, there was very little, at least in the popular press or, or in terms of the promotion of the stuff, uh, any thought given to social control, like we see with like social credits now in places like China. I mean, yeah. this is a means of social control today, not liberation.
2: Yeah, that, that's right. And I think this is this is like you said, um, both of you said, this is what didn't go into the calculations. But these this was at a time. Where I don't think I think they really were not under the immediate experience of any kind of totalitarianism. They saw that as something of the past. Typically naive to people who've rejected. So for these this group of people, and this is still around. What what? Well, I'll I'll, I'll get to their worldview that's that's driving it in a second. But before I do that, I wanted to note that one of the things that this cyberspace salvation draws upon is the changing metaphysics of the modern world. Um, so the world was no longer enchanted, and there were really no more sacred spaces left. And so different writers started analyzing what is motivating the, these forms of uh, scientific speculation, if you will, to move towards a virtual paradise. Um, and so it's not only the advancements of technology, but it really, it, in, in, in several of these philosophers' minds, is really a desperation that there is no more... They're, they're, everything has been impacted by science to the point that meaning and everything tied to a world that is connected to some kind of transcendence has been been left out. It's really it's nihilistic and it, it, and it really di- can't inspire hope for anything beyond just the, the, the crass. And so for these types of people. This becomes a place at which there you can have a sacred domain again, a place where all those aspects about ourselves that long for immortality and and uh, you know being no longer hindered by our fallen limitations can actually find a place and and cr- partly create a place that is paradisal um, and and use these instruments to do it so they can transcend the body, biology, their own their own brain this way. And so this is where sort of your transhumanism and and some of the other varieties come. Um, But really what what is going on behind it, if you look at it, is there is a dualism here, but the dualism is not the fight between sin and the flesh versus its overcoming, right? It's more the dualism that is classic in the West once – once nominalism and naturalism kind of take take root and that's the mind-body dualism right that there are two different kinds of substances the the kind of spiritual intellectual conscious and the material in the bodily and so even though most of these figures would probably be materialists and they would think that consciousness somehow emerges from the material now that it has, we've entered a stage of emergence in which it, it can actually transcend its material conditions. So it can almost, in a, sense, in a sense, detach, if you will, from the conditions that gave rise to it because it has emerged to such an evolutionary state. And so what you have here, though, is they would see what is good and what is positive is everything tied to mind, machine, and virtual reality. This is where you can transcend, this is where you can be liberated and freed, and everything is bad is everything that's tied to the body, biology, and the physical world and its limits. And so death is tied to this, so they want immortality. Um, limits in knowledge is tied to this, so they want some kind of super, a place where you can actually tap into, you know, endless knowledge, infinite knowledge. You almost want, they want deification without Christ, Right. And they want to be almost like God, um, if not God, uh, and have God likeness um, to the point of entering this virtual domain. Yeah. So, in other words, they want to be like
1: God, knowing good and
2: evil. (laughs) Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. But you
0: know, related to this, you know, the the mind-body dualism uh, is uh, very similar similar to the Gnostic uh, outlook: the spirit and the flesh. Um, and I think it is characterized by all of the same problems that we see with that. Um, one of the things too, is that you have a kind of self delusion occurring here. Uh, so this idea that I could upload my consciousness to a computer, what does that really mean? I mean, is the, are we saying that my, my consciousness is a kind of substance, uh, that literally kind of, uh, Travels from a machine made of meat to a machine made of silicon. I mean, is that what? Is that what? It, it seems like that's what they're saying. Or are no, we talking no, about.
1: No,
0: th- that's not
1: what they're saying. They're saying that our mind is a computer, and just like you can transfer it's, it's a a
2: virtual program our mind to itself is a virtual reality. reality. I think is.
0: I think but, but, but even with that, what you're what you're actually doing when you say upload, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. data is that you're not actually uploading anything you're reduplicating it so what what you have in the new in the new operating environment is not you it's a copy of you yeah so that's what i'm getting at in the sense that you never really uh, can escape this machine made of meat Um, yeah you might have a Intellectual child, like you see with Zeus and you know Athena <laughs> coming out yeah. of his head, you know <laughs> that kind of thing, uh, uh, or uh, you know, but that's not really you. That's that's a copy of you. Yeah. So, are you really living on, or is this new thing living on that's not really you, but just a, a clone of you, sort of intellectually?
1: Okay. Well, let let's um, let's play with this a little bit. I think that the answer would be. If we can hook cyberpunk, if we can hook our minds into a computer, into the internet and so on, our mind becomes integrated into it. And once it, well, you know, anything that's online is there forever. Once our mind is integrated into the internet, this this new kind of internet, then even when our body falls away, when our body dies, our mind can continue to function perfectly well in that environment. That, I think, is what they're seeing or thinking of.
0: But that's but – that's, but that, getting back to my thought here is that consciousness is what we mm-hmm. cherish. In other, in other words, there is a, 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 loco, a locus of consciousness. So mm-hmm. the, lo, the, the locus of, of consciousness is in my head at the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm online like you guys all the time. <laughs> there are there are things that I've put out onto the internet. There are there is this show that's going to be out on the internet. It's it's a you know a reproduction of uh, what is going on inside my head in a little Ed. snippet form, alongside your little snippets, and it'll perhaps live longer than me and you and so forth. But that's that's not the locus of consciousness, and that's well, what I'm they would argue
1: they would argue that when you have the direct plug-in when you have the direct interface between your mind and the internet (laughs) then your mind extends your mind your consciousness is part of the internet and thus but it is no longer located specifically in your head
0: yeah and that's an uh, an an article of faith that you know they might hold on to but i have serious doubts that my mind will actually even if i plugged into the internet travel somewhere uh yeah i think that i'm still here
1: uh, yeah and i'm I'm with you on that because i think that the whole thing is based on a fatally flawed assumption that the mind is nothing more than a computer yeah if that assumption is wrong the whole thing falls apart and i'm sure it is
2: and it can be easily shown to be wrong by just (laughs) understanding intentionality conscious intentionality first of all you have to have a conscious someone intentionally put together the computer, you know, so it isn't just a product, uh, a byproduct of a machine that was created in the epiphenomena of it. It has been all it, con- conscious intentionality has went into its making, number one. But it also it, it cannot take on that kind of into Computers cannot take on that kind of intentionality. We can. And so to say that we can be fused with that in, in a way in which com- we are like the computer. Um, or the computer is like us, there's completely different, different things. I and, mean, and I, you know, I, I, it's too much to go into, but I do want to maybe do a show sometime on, on the nature. I mean, the Christian understanding of, of, of the, the you know, the body soul relation, because it is, it isn't this one, it isn't Cartesian. I know a lot of Christians bought into Cartesian language because it was really what was promoted, you know, through, through, through the society. But Christianity is thought very differently, about this it's we are much more psychosomatic and we are much even though there is a way in which the soul can be held by god into a into a kind of a a place distinct from the body but they are made and i they they they're part of what it means to be one identity so you're right chris a minute the minute it is attached to something else, um, any continuity there becomes questionable. I mean, there are debates even in philosophy, as you know, that when you talk about bodily resurrection, there are already enough questions are the question of continuity and identity. And I mean, we I think they can be answered, but I think here it really becomes seriously a problem that that uh, because you, this is a Cartesian kind of view or a kind of emergent view of, of consciousness. But in either case, either property dualism or substance dualism, which both could could fit into this, um, I, I, I don't see even on their own terms how this could ever be a reality. You're dealing with kinds of substances that that are fundamentally different, and they're they're on different orders of being. They can't be the, the way they look at it. Cannot be fused. I mean, Descartes has enough problems understanding how mind and body can interact. You know, it's not the pineal gland.
0: <laughs> I thought it was the
2: pineal gland, but the, <laughs> no, the sure.
0: but the but I guess you know. Getting back to this, you know, you get back to a kind of um, you know, I, I guess uh, intellectual, uh, you know. Crustian bed in this you know so the these guys a lot of the materialists they'll even deny the reality of consciousness or agency yeah because right. they can, because they can't explain it it doesn't yeah. exist so that's you right. know da- yeah. daniel dennett and those guys yeah uh, yeah and and I've, I've come across this where you know uh agency is is evident just all around us we look at a a, you know, a bird for goodness sake. It's, it's yeah. intent on doing a certain thing. It's exercising agency, but these guys have a hard time, uh, ex- you know, accepting that I've, I've heard otherwise intelligent people, um, because they can't explain something, deny that it's real.
2: Yeah. So yes.
0: it's a, that's like, that's like the test of reality for these guys. If we can, ex- yeah. if we can explain it using, uh, this is the sort of the ugly way that positivism gets worked out
2: yeah well, that's right, and I think what they miss is that a computer is a, a series of purely fig you know physical events that are devoid of meaning apart from what we intentionally put in there and and they so they they are qualitatively distinct realities that we're dealing with um and and I guess that that's worth fleshing out some points but here's a, a couple of points what i mean if you were talk if you were to talk about what is the nature, for example, we have developed through the sciences through our knowledge mathematics understanding reality enough something like a cyber world something right now where we are recording and it can go on this thing called internet that has all this technology basically holding it in place but if we were to, to describe some kind of ontology to it what is it you know what I mean it isn't yeah. it isn't spirit and yeah. it isn't soul it isn't intelligible mind it's product of these things it isn't a human body um, but it has a physical dimension it has an intellectual dimension but you start getting into questions of what it, it is a virtual reality I get that whole thing but you think about what is it it has no it has no reality or being apart from from the ones putting it together uh, you know and of course being itself ultimately but then you start thinking you can understand why there's a lot of move in 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 the philosophical world to a kind of uh, ultimate mind and consciousness at the heart of all reality um, because they would see the material world as like the virtual world in relationship to, you know, Plotinus is one. This is where I think Bentley Hart and those guys are going, you know, where they're, they're, the virtual world and the material world are almost the same kind of shadows, right, of what 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 is ultimate. And so um, it is. In, it does raise a lot of questions, though, for us as Christians to think about the nature of material and spiritual reality and how the virtual world is different from it, even though it depends on physical and, and spiritual uh, reality to, to. Yeah. Let, let, me push, let me, let me,
0: let me push this out a little bit, you know, thinking about first Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about spiritual bodies. Yeah. Sometimes people, uh, you know, ask, you know, what, you know, is the future of our physical state? And there Paul seems to indicate that what we currently dwell in is in some sense something that'll be uh renewed but in another sense sloughed off in other words we put a, we, it's like a this is a, a cloth, a, sort of a a manner of being clothed and yeah. then we'll be uh, clothed with the mortality that the mortal will be swallowed up by the immortal and then he makes distinctions between kinds of spiritual bodies and there's, you know, sort of uh, the glories that accompany each. I don't know if he is saying that they uh, are kind of like in greater or lesser degrees of magnificence or just qualitatively different when he's referring to animals and their glory and that kind of thing. But I guess I guess, the larger kind of thought or concern is, is that um, there's a sense in which embodiment is never... Uh, like, uh, bel- you know, sort of seen as, uh, it, you know, negative in itself. It's, it's yeah. there's embodiment is kind of the the fact of the matter and the nature of our embodiment will be altered in the resurrection. Yeah. Which, again, implies a kind of uh, co-inhering, you know, between, you know, what mm-hmm. we would refer to as our spirit and uh, our body, there's a kind of sense yeah. in which they're bound up with each other, uh, and really to be separate, to separate the two is like a bad thing. Yeah, uh, that's right. Christian,
2: Christian, that's within. right. And and that's why I think, and I think that's why you really see. I mean, the issue. That we're confronting now with, say, biotech, right? Where biotech, let, let's just kind of play, play this kind of um, that, that technology is a sort of uh, returning to paradise, just for a minute. Um, so someone could, in principle, say, because of the fall, my, my subjective self and my body are out of congruence, right? And it is now through technology and its advancements that I can bridge that healing, that I can somehow bring a harmony by altering my physical body to somehow match who I was truly created to be, my real self. Um, and so so you could see somebody try to use this kind of line of reasoning. I think that the secular variant of it is, is really what is being held there. Um, but this is, this is all tied to what you just said, this notion that body and embodied state must somehow be the one and the part that is is bad and imprisoned and limited and that it is this kind of this aspect of ourself that can lift itself up out of that um, rather than be connected to it the right way um, and of course there is a longing all humans have to be, be be reconciled in their in to all the parts that are broken about them but the answer isn't chop and paste um, and, and and tear up that which it has the inherent gift uh, uh, right there on the surface um, of, of embodiment and all the gift that comes with it. Um, and so the, the, I think you see that likewise with this apocalyptic AI, if you will, that that they have this notion that it is bad to be limited embodied and and you need to be you we need to be liberated from all of that whereas christianity is an affirmation of its goodness a reaffirmation of its goodness in christ and then a perfecting of it so that it is no longer under death hell and the grave but is actually to move towards the perfection which it was created to be glorification and as you said that that full integration of of uh, soul and and body, um, that that are the house of each other, if you will. Um, yeah. And to, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can see that Glenn wants to say something, but I wanted to oh, say yeah. something too. I
0: mean, we're, we're getting pretty close to the time to wrap yeah. up as well. But, but go ahead, Glenn. No,
1: I, I'm not sure that, that there are some speculations I have surrounding some of these things that I'm not sure this is really the right spot to throw them in. So I'll toss it yeah. back to you.
0: Okay. Well, our friend, Brian Mitchell, remember uh, Brian, he did a show with us on, uh, origins revenge. Yeah. Um, his book is out and it was yeah. just recently reviewed by Scott Yenner, uh, over at uh, Boise state. Um, <clears throat> and I think, uh, his review, where was the review? I think maybe it was in something maybe related to Claremont, but anyway, you could find it online. But, but, you know, if you remember Brian's point was that, uh, some of this, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, untethered uh, sort of neoplatonism that we see with origin kind of plays right into this, this sort yeah. of trans phenomenon we see today. So if God transcends gender, does that yeah. mean being made in the image of God means that we as well transcend gender? And origin, uh, you know, and people who thought in the same Way in antiquity would say, "Well, it's almost like you know the the ideal is the eunuch, you know, sort yeah. of this, this sexless creature, um, yeah. eunuch for the kingdom or whatever." But the Hebraic sort of, uh, I guess, spine that endured uh, and carried forward into Christianity was triumphant, and you get an understanding of of, of sex that actually uh transcends the particular uh created order that we find ourselves in so you know in aquinas for example i don't know the the place i couldn't quote it for you but uh it's he he maintains that no there are male and female uh identities post resurrection that yeah. these things continue into uh you know eternity and we see a little bit of this in Lewis. You know, if you remember in Lewis in you know Perilandra, uh there there's this episode where you know I think it's Ransom sees the the Eldil. I think that's what they're referred to, and the and the Eldil of Venus is female, and the yeah. Eldil of Mars is male, and uh, so consequently, it's something that runs deeper than you know the way we talk about uh, the You know, gender today mean you know what we imply with gender is that it's entirely socially uh constructed yeah. in in sort of the way people talk about it in the current moment but there was an older understanding that mm-hmm. gender is actually metaphysical in character yeah and pre That's right. and, and it exists prior mm-hmm. to social uh relationships but anyway i can tell that i've i can tell i've got you thinking there glenn
1: and tolkien argues the same thing about the valar yeah. um that that male and female is part of what they are yeah it's, yeah it's embedded in, into their creation so I mean this is Tolkien Lewis all these guys are getting this from a much older
0: tradition of course right right yeah yeah so anyway uh, Tom Tom you should probably wrap things up here and I got a few things to say at the end
2: okay um yeah and, and I don't want to go too far in this but one one last thing is something we probably uh, you know can spend a lot more time on but I think that turn to the dark I, I uh, you know is is very more likely <laughs> and we're seeing it um uh lennox uh what i can't remember his first name john lennox at oh. oxford the oh, yeah. mathematician. he just did a book on the ai um and it's <laughs> called i think 2084 i think that's the name of it um and he was quoting neil postman in his book i'm ourselves to death where he's going going back between the way in which this world that is coming um was received by your kind of uh you know, your heavy end thinkers like uh, Orwell and Huxley. And so he went between uh, like Orwell was warning us, you know, that this is going to be, this isn't going to be good. um, And we're basically going to be oppressed by big brother. And then he flips it with Huxley was the other side. Uh, You're not even going to need big brother because people are going to become so in love with their oppression by this new technology that they're just going to become indifferent, and because they're losing their capacities to think, right? Um, so rather than intelligence enhancing, it's it's this weakening of it. Then you got Orwell, who would talk about the way in which he feared the burning of books, which we fear, you know, uh, oftentimes with our with our social justice zealots. Um, but Huxley was the other end. And it's, it, why do we need to fear that? No one's reading them anyway, right? Um, technology, of course, is is just, it's throwing stuff at us, but we're not able to deal with it. And then they went with it, to, you know, Orwell's word would be deprived of information. Huxley was, well, it's reducing us, basically uh, technology is reducing us to not needing info because we're so passive and and are, we're self-centered and egoistic. So you see the kind of two, negative ends that can really go into bad dark places and i think they that's just a hint of what happens when the dream of this kind of utopia actually starts to have holes punched in it yeah
1: yeah, yeah. i would argue that we're actually living in 1984 wrapped in brave new world
0: yeah <laughs> yeah kind of the the worst of both uh yeah finnius Anyway, on that happy thought, let's say goodbye. (laughs) But before we do, we want to thank uh, a number of folks who have become patrons of the show. Uh, We launched our Patreon page, and we have 10 patrons. We have people who have signed up at every level, and uh, we're really pleased about that. And uh, if you're one of those folks, thank you very much. If you're not one of those folks, you can still become one of those folks. There's a link in the show notes about that. And uh, we encourage you to to check out our Patreon page and become a patron for folks who uh, support us through the fight, laugh, feast network. That's a great way to do it too. We thank you for that. There are people who just support us directly in other ways, uh, through, uh, anchor podcasts and, and even through our website. So, uh, I guess the thing I'm trying to say is thank you.
1: <laughs> okay, Chris. Uh, just one correction. Yep. We do not have anybody who's come in at the highest level Patreon
0: yet. What's what is that?
1: Rousseau's assassin. Oh,
0: we do. No, no, no. We do. <laughs> we do have, we do yeah, have we, one already. Yep. There. Yep. We got one. Oh. Well, I am impressed. Thank you very much. <laughs> 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 yep. We've got one at that level. So, if you want to become another assassin of Rousseau, <laughs> you can. You can do that. But anyway, uh, that's enough for now, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.